Hello, and welcome to Roundel Round We Go. I'm Emily, I use she and they pronouns. And I'm Paul, and I use he, him pronouns. And today we're going to go to Thaden Boys. We visited Thaden Boys after we drew it out. Actually, we went out to the Epping Ongar Railway, and on the way back, we went to Thaden Boys, went to the town a little bit, went to the station. So that was exciting because we haven't had a chance to visit that many of the stations before. But we're going to get into Thaden Boys in a minute. Before we do, we just want to say we're really pleased to be back. Thank you to everyone who has interacted us with us on social media, been following us, people who have found the podcast since the time we stopped recording the last sort of series of them. So it's really great to be back. And excitingly, at the end of this episode, we have some new developments. Obviously, there being more underground stations now is quite exciting, but we have some other uh, developments that we'll tease for now as well. So please make sure you listen to the end bit. But I think without further ado, Paul, do you want to take us through the details of Thaden Boys? So, Thayton Boys Station opened on the 24th of April of 1865 and is now on the London Underground Central Line in Fair Zone 6. Thayton Boys is in the Epping Forest district of Essex. It's not in any of the London boroughs. Sadly. Thayton Boys has level access on the eastbound platform only for trains towards Epping, but none on the more useful platform for trains into central London. The designer of Thaden Boys Station is unknown, but we do know it was built by the Great Eastern Railway. The name Thaden comes from the Old English word for a valley where thatch is obtained. In 1240, the land was owned by Hugh de Bosco and was known as Thaden de Bosco. Boys is likely a corruption of de Bosco. There is a possibly apocryphal story that when the line was being constructed, the Great Eastern Railway asked the parish clerk for the correct spelling of boys, and he gave the spelling B-O-I-S, assuming it originated from the French word for wood, referring to Epping Forest. There is no bus stop at the station, and the bus stop in the village is served only by non-London bus operators. So... You can't catch a London bus there. (laughs) And the only bus that does go there is pretty infrequent. Anyway, the Labyrinth is number 162 out of 270 and is situated on the eastbound platform. So one of the things we want to make sure we do in all our episodes going forward is give people a really good picture of the station if they haven't been there. So this station, it's a quite old fashioned sort of country style station, would you say? Kind of any sort of yeah, outer Yeah, very rail. historic looking. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got an entrance on one side. So sort of small entrance building with a couple of gates coming in on one side. It's the side that goes towards Epping. So it's only one more stop on that side, which is why that's the only side you have level access from. And then there's an iron footbridge that I'll talk about in a minute that goes over to the other side to go to London. There's a waiting room on the London side of the station. 
station. Now, there is an entrance as well on the London side. It's gated up. There doesn't seem to be much evidence that it has ever been open, or at least has been opened recently. If anyone uses the station more frequently and knows more details about when that's closed, it's one of those things that it is quite a suburban station. There's not that much documentary evidence of when things were changing at the station. So if people have information, we'd love it if you could fill us in. The entrance itself, just a red brick building, very standard on stations, but there's also the Station Master house there. Yeah, today that's a sort of white painted pebble dash textured looking building, but I think it was originally probably red brick as well. You can see there's the brick showing on the side of it, and it's now a privately owned house. It would have been where the Station Master lived originally, and I think one of the facts which demonstrates just how rural this station is, is that the old layout diagrams of it show that there would have been a what's marked as a fowl shed would probably have been a little shed for chickens to be kept in kind of behind the station master's house which is definitely not something you'd find at one of the central london stations well you know urban chickens are very trendy at the moment but i'm not sure they were when that that building was built so yes it is quite rural out there the footbridge is interesting so we saw a plaque on it saying it was made by errol brothers at germiston works glasgow in 1885 we had a little look into them they were a steelworks in the germiston area of glasgow it was formed in 1882 by Thomas Arthur Errol and James Cameron Errol. I won't sing the Titanic song as I did before when we were researching this. Very notably, all the sources we looked at said, not William Errol. We had no idea who William Errol was and why they so specifically needed to say not William Errol. But we looked him up and he's the force behind building Tower Bridge. So quite famous man, but a different Errol. Also from Scotland, but not the same Errols who owned the steelworks. They built a lot of railway footbridges. So the Errol brothers built a bridge in the Martinez railway station in Buenos Aires. So if anyone's listening from Argentina, you might be able to go check that out. Um, several other railways, footbridges in places like Ireland on... I'm sorry, my Irish is bad. Can you say the, the Irish? Oh, the Irish National Railway. I think it's Yanarod Iron, but I'm not very good at Irish either. So that's that's a that's a failing of ours. But yes, on the Irish railways, they, he, he built several footbridges, many of which are listed structures now. And <laughs> something that has come up in two podcasts now, he, well, not he, they, it's brothers. They did the metalworks behind the Wiener Reisenrad, which is the famous Ferris wheel in Prater Park in Vienna. If you've seen the film, The Third Man, it features in that film. We mentioned that in our Earl's Court episode because we were talking about large Ferris wheels and it's come up again. So they were a quite notable ironworking duo and have a bridge here at Thaden Boys, which is fun. The one thing we didn't mention about our description of the station, well, I'm sure there might be small things that we didn't mention, but the big thing is that it's got some canopy supports, really beautiful old iron canopy supports that have GER on them. Now, GER doesn't have anything to do with the London Underground, but it has to do with the original history of the station. So Paul's going to get into that in a bit of detail. But we're not going to get to the GER part for a while because it's always more complicated than that. It is indeed. The story of Thaden Boys Station all goes all the way back to a company called the Eastern Counties Railway. 
and their main line ran from Bishopsgate, a terminus that no longer exists in central London. It would have been next to Liverpool Street Station, and their trains ran via Stratford out east to Essex and East Anglia. And they built, in 1856, a branch line which ran from just north of Stratford Station out to Loughton, and most of that is now part of the branch of the central line which runs towards Thaden Boys. Yeah, Loughton is just south of Thaden Boys. So if you don't have your tube map out and you're not that solid on this side of the map, I'd take a look now or look at it on Google Maps just so you can picture that. So yeah, they were going to Loughton, which is just a little bit south of Thaden Boys. In fact, definitely get your Google Maps or Ordnance Survey or whatever out because we're going to start talking about some places which are not on the tube map at all. Get your Ordnance Survey if you have it. Let's support Ordnance Survey. So there was this railway that went to Loughton and then we kind of get into the weird way the Victorian railways were built because a whole new company called the Epping Railways Company was formed by people who lived in Epping to build a new extension which would go from Loughton on the Eastern Counties Railway out to Epping and then possibly be extended onwards to Ongar and maybe even further than that. And that was about another 11 and a bit miles or 18 kilometres of railway they wanted to build. They initially were supported in this by the Eastern Counties Railway, um, mostly because the Eastern Counties Railway uh, was really worried about another competing line, which some other people wanted to build, which was going to go directly from London to Ongar and then to Dunmo, which is further north, and then even further north all the way up to Bury St Edmunds. Which is so far. We were just looking at this on the map, and that's a that's a big extension to build coming out. Well, not an extension, just a big line to build coming out of London. But the Eastern Counties Railway saw that line as being competitions. They wanted to stop it, and they thought the best way to do that would be to have an existing railway going to Epping that they were supporting. So, in fact, their tactic worked because once the Eastern Counties Railway had supported this new route to be built to Epping, the other plan was completely dropped. And once the other plan was dropped, the Eastern Counties Railway didn't see any point in building a railway to Epping anymore, (laughs) and therefore they stopped supporting this Epping Railway Company in building a railway to Epping. But... This independent Epping Railway Company still wanted to build their line. They thought it would be a really good idea because they lived in Epping and they wanted a railway to London and they thought it would make money because there was lots of, you know, decent farmland around there. There'd be lots of freight possibilities and they wanted to go ahead. Now, that was difficult if the company that you're planning to join your railway up to doesn't want you to do so. So they had a clever tactic of the kind of skullduggery that goes on in this Victorian railway world, have they proposed, purely for negotiating reasons, the construction of another new railway, which would go from their new line down towards the railway that goes via Barking into Fenchurch Street. They'd have their own route into London. So that would start at Epping, would it? Yeah, that would be like, I guess, Epping, Loughton, and then down to the Barking line into Fenchurch Street. And presumably, even though this whole plan was entirely theoretical just to make a point and argue with the other railway company, they would have had to create an entirely new station at Loughton, wouldn't they? Probably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they would have... They They knew they weren't ever doing this. They knew they weren't going to do this, but they had to spend lots of money on the legal fees and drawing up the plans and all that kind of thing. And... Effectively, once they had put this plan together, it worked as a tactic and the Eastern Counties Railway said, oh, all right, then we'll go ahead and, you know, let you join up with our railway. And they effectively, in 1862, took control of 
the Epping Railway Company by funding most of the cost of the construction of the new line. And there was also permission given around the same time for an extension beyond Epping all the way to Dunmo, which never got built in the end. Uh, they only got as far as Ongar. But there was a bit of a delay in the construction because there was some other railway goings on at the time, which saw the Eastern Counties Railway merged with a couple of other railway companies to form the Great Eastern Railway. And it was them who eventually built this new line from Loughton all the way up to Epping, which opened on the 24th of April of 1865, with the penultimate station on the line opening at the same time and being called Faden. But they needed more boys. Yes. <laughs> Always had to get in there somewhere. <laughs> yes. They, they, they then renamed it on the 1st of December 1865, so when it's been open less than a year, as Thaden Boys. I suspect there are people around being like, this isn't what our town is called. It's called Thaden Boys. And they finally just said, whatever, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go on with it. So just as a sort of recap for that, without all the drama between the railway companies, you originally had this line that ran from Stratford to Loughton, and then it got extended from Loughton up to Ongar. And that was, that was the pieces. There was just a lot of drama in between those times. Absolutely, yes. And it was built by the Great Eastern Railway, and hence their initials G-E-R can be found in the canopy supports at Thaden Boys Station. Now, of course, today with this being an underground line, we think of it having passenger traffic, but the original promoters of the line also wanted it for freight traffic, and it was used for that. There would have been a goods yard at Faden Boys Station and many of the others on the line as well. By 1911, there was a daily milk train which ran Mondays to Fridays. Uh, starting in Ongar each morning, it would have loaded up milk churns at each station, going up the line as far as Thaden, and then running to Stratford, where the milk churns would have been sent onwards to central London. By 1918, we know that there would have been 5,017 gallon churns of milk loaded into that train on that branch each week. So it's a lot of milk going into central London from that line every day. And then the train would have come back in the evening and unloaded all of the empty milk churns. And they carried on having goods traffic into Faden Boys until the yard was closed on the 18th of April 1966, which is actually quite a long time after it was operated by London Underground. But again, more on that in a yeah, few minutes. It is, yeah, it's one of those surprising things, though, to think that it went that late. But then you also see freight trains roll through overground stations today and go, whoa, what's going on here? So, yeah. Now, there were, of course, also passenger trains running on the line which today is the main traffic, indeed the only traffic. By 1874, that added up to 18 trains per day, which is not really far off the number of trains per hour that run through Thaden Boys <laughs> on a weekday these days, which yeah. shows you the scale of the change. But those trains, they'd have been long trains. The Great Eastern Railway ran 15 carriage trains made up of four-wheel carriages. And something we'll talk a bit more about in a minute is that it was quite a kind of upper-class area, so out of those 15 carriages, five of them would have been first class carriages. And then they updated the trains over the years. From 1911 onwards, they were using longer bogey carriages rather than the old four wheel carriages. Can and... you can you explain what a bogey carriage is? Because you had to explain this to me earlier. <laughs> yeah, of course. So the simplest carriages are the four wheel ones. They're just like a rigid railway carriage with two wheels on axles at either end. But... There's only so long you can make a carriage like that and it can still go round corners. 
if the wheels are too far apart, it's not great. So anyone who's ridden on a pacer will have experienced that. Love a pacer. So you need to have to have long carriages, more wheels, and the way to do that is to put four wheels on two axles on basically like a little framework called a bogey. The Americans call it a truck, and you have one of those at either end of the carriage, and you have a pivot on that that connects it to the carriage. They can rotate independently, and that means the train can go effectively round corners. It gives a more comfortable ride. You'll see two bogies, one at either end of each carriage, on the vast majority of modern railway carriages. But not all, because sometimes you have articulated trains where there's carriages which share a bogey in between them. And in fact, from 1928 onwards, they were using articulated carriages designed by Sir Nigel Gresley on this line. So that was just before, in fact the whole process of it being taken over by the London Underground took place. But again, more on that in a few minutes' time. Paul mentioned earlier that a third of these trains were first-class fares, and it went beyond that because they didn't allow workmen's fares on this line. So most acts of parliament creating railways insisted that there needed to be workmen's fares, and those were cheap fares for people traveling into the city to work. Traditionally, this, this kind of had to do with knocking down huge swaths of cheap or overcrowded housing to build railways, and then people having to move farther out. So actually, a lot of the people that moved from sort of the city of London area or nearby, the traditional East End, were moved farther out and then would travel in on workmen's fares. Famously, railway companies hated this. They'd try to get around this by doing the Forkman's Fair sort of first thing in the morning. I know I've heard of counts of people get, having to come in from sort of Tottenham, Edmonton areas to Liverpool Street, 5 a.m., and then there being whole churches and entertainment areas and stuff for people to, to go to while they waited for work to start. But that's its own story. But here they didn't have any workman fares. I'm not sure exactly how they got around this. I think because the railway on this line out from Stratford's northeastwards to, you know, initially to Loughton and then the extension onwards to Epping and Ongar, it would have been built through a fairly rural area. So they weren't displacing people in anything like the same scale, if at all. And therefore, there wasn't that ability of Parliament to put the requirements on them to have workmen's fares. And they always just resisted any attempts to have that imposed on them later on. Yeah, and this area was quite a wealthy area. Um, in 1911, so uh, the Wanstead Urban District in Wanstead, which is farther south than where we are by quite a bit, but it is on this railway line, more or less. 44.5% of housing in Wanstead had seven or more rooms. So those are pretty nice, spacious houses for people to have. And it's interesting to see sort of what's the cause and effect there, because obviously this area was wealthy to begin with, but did it stay wealthy because there wasn't cheap rail fare in, or were those two things unrelated because people would have moved there later on? I don't know. But if you go out there now, it's definitely still a wealthy area. I think it's likely it did affect it. You know, if they'd opened the railway up and immediately had cheap commuter fares, you'd have got way more people moving out. You'd have got big housing developments to take advantage of that. And you'd have totally changed the area from what we see now, I suspect. Yes, but historically you'd have people moving to places that we think of as sort of the poorer areas, but then 
those areas shifted over time. I mean, think of somewhere like Stoke Newington that used to be a very poor area and has gentrified like mad. Those things shift later on. So there could be people, you know, moving to a place later after these fairs, after it was already taken over by the underground and having changing the, the character of that area. But this never happened. Ah, uh, but by the time... The underground had been built. You'd also got the green belt being imposed, which massively restricted the level of development you've got. So that's always going to make it a kind of rural area with higher house prices and, you know, wealthier, longer distance commuters. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing. And yeah, it's impossible to tell. But certainly, you know, it remains a very green rural area. Someone called George Potter described in 1920 how the residential districts along this line out towards Dayton Boys are well wooded and the traveller does not have the feeling that all the available land has been completely swallowed up by the erection of modern houses. He said that among London's many suburban lines, few could take a higher place for prettiness and scenery and outlook as seen from the carriage windows as on this route. So still much of the kind of rural character preserved that we still really do see today around Thaden Boys. But there was development going on. By the 1920s and 30s, there were new streets being built in Thaden Boys over to the west of the station, uh, with speculative housing going up, apparently for prices of £600 or less. I have a few of those. (laughs) Ooh, don't we wish. And the line started to get overcrowded, not so much, I guess, around Thaden Boys, but certainly once you got closer in towards... Stratford and in towards central London and the other lines, the main line into Liverpool Street and Bishopsgate was getting sent overcrowded. So there was a desire to change the way the trains were run. Now, today, the railway out to Epping is operated by the central line of the London Underground. So to give a brief overview of the central line, it originally opened in 1900 as the Central London Railway, a privately owned independent tube line running from Shepherd's Bush to Bank. Uh, That was extended to Liverpool Street Station in 1912, and then it was taken over by a company called the Underground Group in 1913, which was a private company which operated a large portion of the rest of the tube lines. And in 1933, the Underground Group, including the Central Line, all became part of state-controlled London transport. And in 1933, it wasn't the Great Eastern Railway running the line out to Ongar anymore. It had then become part of the LNER, so the London North Eastern Railway. And they were considering electrifying that line in 1933, but it was considered to be too expensive. But, conveniently, the London Underground had an awful lot of money coming its way. Uh, because the government was providing lots of funding for massive infrastructure projects as a way to boost the economy at the time. So the Tube embarked on something called the New Works Programme, which would cost about £40 million, which is nothing in today's money, but an awful lot back then. And that would involve some things like extending tube lines, especially the Northern Line was extended at that time. Uh, It also involved replacing all the trams with trolleybuses, so not quite so brilliant. And one of the projects was the extension of the Central Line. And the plan was to extend the Central Line from its terminus at Liverpool Street underground to Stratford, where it very briefly pops up to the surface on its own new platforms. And then it goes back underground again as far as Leighton, where it would pop up and then take over the existing railway onwards from Leighton via Thaden Boys 
to Epping, and then even all the way onwards to Ongar, which would be the terminus at the time. And also they would take over the Hainault Loop, which is the other bit of the central line out in the east, which I'm sure we'll talk about at a future occasion. Many future occasions when we draw all those stations on the Hainault Loop. (laughs) And this was a huge project to turn what had been a steam-operated railway into a London Underground line. Um, It would involve upgrading all of the existing surface level tracks with electrification and new signalling and rebuilding some of the stations and also of course digging all the new tunnels and I think all the kind of details of a lot of that will probably lead to another station when we kind of draw one out that's further back towards London and more of the construction work would have been taking place there. But when we were at Thayton Boys Station we did see some of the evidence of the underground conversion work like Obviously, today, there's the London Underground roundel signs, Mm -hmm. and they're on kind of new brick sort of balustrade station walls, which would have been built as part of that conversion to bring it up into line with London Underground standards of design at the time. Now, work on building the tube extension began in 1936, but was only partially completed by the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, and as resources and money and manpower and everything Everything went towards the war. Went towards the war. They suspended all the work in 1940 and quite famously some of the unfinished tunnels were used as an underground factory but more on that when we get to one of the stations in that part of the world. And once the war was over the extension was still seen as a really high priority so unlike the Northern Heights extension to the Northern Line which mostly got cancelled after the war more on that on another time as well. Okay, we, you got to stop teasing them for other times. What have we got today, Paul? Uh, so they resumed the work in 1945 on the Central Line extension. The first phase of it to open up to Leytonstone opened on the 5th of May of 1947. Even once that had opened, there'd still have been steam trains running from Leytonstone all the way out to the terminus of the line at Ongar. But then from the 14th of December 1947, the tube trains started running as far as Woodford. So the steam trains then only ran from Woodford to Wongar. (laughs) And then eventually the tube got all the way to Epping on the 25th of September 1949, which would have included going through Thaden Boys and therefore the main regular daily steam train mainline services would have stopped then and Thayden Boys became a tube station. And some of the locals didn't like this change. You know, you'd think fancier new electrified trains, service connecting more frequently, more easily into London. But they didn't like the change because there were no longer semi-fast services, so the kind of services you still get on the Metropolitan Line today, skipping lots of stations as they go in. And tube trains have fewer seats than these very large trains that they had there before. So... It wasn't It wasn't all for the good for them. But mainline trains continued on uh, with freight until 1966 and some sort of excursions that would go from there elsewhere um, out to the seaside, really. So there were some interesting routes that were still running from there. Yeah, they had, until 1966, there would have been occasional mainline trains hauled by steam engines or later on diesels that would have come down from sort of Epping and Thaden Boys and then... They have managed to work their way around a very complicated series of railway junctions through Stratford and onto the East London yeah, Line. Yeah, we tried to figure this out. We think what they did is they went down to Stratford, then they went into the sort of Stratford uh, 
eastbound overground line that they have today. And then when you got to Dalston, now normally these trains would keep going today, but there was a curve where they could go down at Dalston Junction, go south from there, and then from New Cross go out to the sea, which is more information than you needed to know about that. But we were very curious about how they did that, and that's the only route we could see from old maps. It's the kind of connections that just don't exist today, but used to be much more prevalent between all of these different railways. And there were even some kind of almost secret regular mainline trains which ran up until uh, May 1970, which were run by British Rail for railway workers who worked in central London and came from, you know, Epping and Thayden Boys and round there. And they would have been mixing in with the tube trains. And they weren't, I don't think, publicly advertised, although regular passengers could ride on them if they knew about them and bought a ticket and wanted to. Man, you know there were some hardcore people track bashing on those trains. <laughs> they were they were like, oh, we got to ride them all. They're like parliamentary services, but probably more functional. Yeah, absolutely. But basically, since then, it's been the central line. It's had frequent central line trains running through it and... People boiling to death on them. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I'm giving the central line a hard time. It's actually not so bad. There has been some refurbishment of the station, I think, in the last few years. And of course, the ticket office closing and those kinds of things. But it looks pretty much as it would have done, really, when the underground took it over. What I think is interesting when you're out there is it does feel so remote. I mean, obviously, you're sort of right in the middle of Epping Forest. Well, Epping Forest is is very large, but you're right in the middle of it there. And it does feel one of the things that's been pointed out at various things we've been looking at is how much that is the only service out there. You have... Uh, Trains going, you know, up to Chesant on the overground. You've got the Anglia trains serving elsewhere in Essex. But that bit is really just underground trains. And it's one of the few places in London that you just get those underground trains and not a sort of other services that run with it, other mainline services that run with it. So it does feel very remote and isolated. Yeah, and it's not like on the Metropolitan Line where you've got the fast trains on Chilton or on the east end of the district line where you've got the fast trains run by C2C. It's just the slow central line trains and that's your only choice. You can kind of see why the locals were not entirely (laughs) happy with that being all they had to ride on. And actually, what with it being so remote, that gets us into something else about Faden Boys. One of the things that people tend to think about, or some people think, people who have thought about this, about uh, these stations on this sort of Epping, Thaden Boys, these far out stations, is that it's odd that they're in Zone 6 because you have uh, stations, you know, at the end of the Metropolitan Line, they're in Zone 8 and 9. And it does seem to be somewhat of a myth from our research that these stations, because some people have said these stations are in lower zone counts because it's subsidized by Essex Council. So they're paying money to keep the fares lower for people who are traveling in on the central line. Now, someone made a freedom of information request about this. When the freedom of information request came back, the person who made it was told that there are no fare subsidies received from Essex County Council since the inception of TFL in 2000. So they haven't received anything since 2000. And they are not aware of any payments being made in the 90s. The Epping branch was moved 
into Zone 6 in 1997. That was an initiative from the TFL precursor, London Regional Transport. The reason the Metropolitan Line to Amersham and Chesham continue to have Zone 7 to 9 is because of this being a joint line with Chiltern Railways, and the fares have to reflect that and what's extended beyond Amersham. So, in 2001, Epping Forest District Council did reduce fares for people who were elderly or disabled, although they now get free travel anyway, but this wasn't something that was part of of this sort of zone six thing so it was moved in zone six we don't know why but that was a tfl initiative or the precursor of tfl initiative now i wanted to dig a little deeper into this because i was curious about actually because there's articles there's maps printed where you can see the zones laid out and it's kind of a little bump that sticks out that's zone six and people say it doesn't really make sense so i looked on the maps now thaden in zone six is 24.7 kilometers from Trafalgar Square. I use that traditional marker of the center of London as Trafalgar Square. So it's 24.7 kilometers. Now, Moore Park on the Metropolitan Line and is the border, it's a zone 6 slash 7 station, so it's the border of zone 6, is 24.9 kilometers. So actually, it's basically at the same place as St. Boys is. I'm sure Epping is a little bit farther, but it's not that dramatic of a difference. Now, I looked at Chessant, which is in Zone 7. It is a bit closer. It's 22.78 kilometers, but that is a line that TFL took over recently. They have incorporated it as part of the overground, and I suspect they wanted to kind of make as much money as possible and keep that on the same fare rate, so they kept that in Zone 7. So that is closer, but in Zone 7, but it's only two kilometers closer. An interesting one I looked at was Swanley, which is out in Kent. Uh, I believe it's Kent. It might be inside the London border, but I think it is in Kent. Swanley is in Zone 8, and it is 24.39 kilometers away. So it is basically the same as Thaden, but it's in Zone 8. But also, it is not operated by TFL. That is a national rail service. So I think... It's actually not that out there to say that this station belongs in Zone 6. Epping's maybe a little bit more of a stretch because it's farther out, but it isn't that much farther out. And actually, I think realistically, as I was saying before, there's no other services around here. There's no, you can catch a faster train. This is the only way in. And I bet the underground's thinking, we want people to keep riding these trains. Let's make it cheaper for them because otherwise they're just going to start driving in and creating more congestion. Now, we've talked about how rural Faden Boys is today. And in fact, back in the sort of Victorian era and first half of the 20th century, it was sufficiently rural and far out from London that it seems to have been a bit of a holiday destination. And people would, you know, go out there for pleasant days out. And that resulted in the construction of what were known as retreats or tea rooms uh, on Coppice Row, which is one of the main roads through Faden Boys. And these were owned by two different families. There was one called the Faden Retreat, owned by the Riggs family. And they also owned kind of several others. They basically had a chain. They had retreats down in Clacton on the sea and South End and Margate. Uh, And there was another retreat called the Grey's Retreat, which was owned by the Grey family. And actually, the interesting thing about these is that they were not serving alcohol. Uh, They were temperance retreats. They would serve soft drinks only. And they were supposed to be, I guess, a kind of alternative to, you know, going to the pub and going to 
more kind of conventional drinking leisure destinations. It's interesting because today you have a lot of people giving up drinking for various reasons or people for religious reasons who don't drink. It's interesting, <laughs> could they get something like this again? Maybe slightly different entertainment, but you know, you don't drink. I don't drink very often, but yeah, that's, that's kind of an exciting op opportunity that I'm not sure people are taking advantage of. Yeah, I mean, the temperance movement was really big back then. And, you know, not only were there these kind of leisure destinations, there were sort of temperance pubs, effectively, where they'd serve uh, soft drinks only in what looked like a pub environment. I mean, so. they do have those alcohol and drug free, drug free nightclub things where people just dance. But, you know, that's not everyone's idea of a good time. So... Yeah, no, other alternatives are nice. I mean, these were big destinations. They were huge buildings as the main entertainment venue where you, I guess, go and get your tea. And they'd have almost like a fairground outside. One of them had a big helter-skelter and stalls up around it and lots of bunting hanging and people playing on the lawns and that kind of thing. They were very popular for people to travel to from London. There would have been trains chartered by Sunday schools to Thaden Boys to take all the kids out to one of these retreats for the day. Um, it's obviously a very appropriate leisure destination for a church trip, being a temperance place. Mm -hmm. And even the Dr. Bernardos children's homes in Stepney would charter trains to take the kids out to Thaden Boys and I guess go to these and go out into Epping Forest and that kind of thing. And then, I mean, they were you know, large buildings with lots of accommodation. During the First World War, they both got turned into auxiliary hospitals for uh, looking after casualties, and then both got destroyed by bombs during the Second World War, which seems particularly bad luck, given that there can't have been much bombing in Faden Boys, miles outside of London, and somehow both of these temperance retreats managed to get flattened. And very unfortunately, 26 soldiers who had been billeted in the Riggs retreat were killed when the bomb landed on there. So, you know, quite an unfortunate occasion. And interestingly, another reason why it might be difficult to target Thaden boys with bombing is that they don't have any street lamps there. Um, obviously, they would have turned those off during the war anyway. But it's just an interesting sort of fact about the town is that it first got electricity in 1926, but the only street lamps that were installed were ones quite near the station. And in 2016, there was a petition to install street lamps that only got 51 signatures out of the 4,000 people. So they've never installed street lamps there, which seems frankly quite dangerous to me. But, you know, if you want to keep your sort of rural town feel, although I feel like most other rural towns have street lamps, but yeah, it's just an interesting thing about Thaden Boys. And one more interesting thing that I know Paul wants to talk about. Yes, just to show how rural it is, they have a donkey derby. Uh, which sounds pretty good fun to me. It's a race. It's held every year in the summer on the village green in July. And it's just lots of kids riding on donkeys and seeing who can go the fastest. The 32nd of them was held in 2019, which I think means the first of them would have been held in 1987, which is the year that I was born. So there's so... been a donkey derby every year of your life and you've never been. Yeah. And there, well, there wasn't one for the last couple of years because yes. of COVID. But they had one again this year, didn't they? No, I think it was cancelled okay. this year. Yeah. That's a shame. Um, well, when it returns, we'll have to yeah. make a trip to the Donkey Derby. And as Paul said before, there are no buses. So for our Onward Connections section, 
I've never said those together. Connection section. Anyway, for Onward Connection, we don't really have anything to say. There are those buses that aren't London buses a little bit away from the station, but I've never ridden on those and I won't recommend buses I haven't been on not knowing where they go. But I'm sure they're lovely. You can give them a shot. But we said, you know, just go. It's not too far. This is probably the the closest station to the sort of depths of Epping Forest. There's a lot, like even Wanstead Flats, much farther south is part of Epping Forest. But if you want to go enjoy Epping Forest, head from Thaden Boys out into Epping Forest. And yeah, enjoy yourself because there aren't, as we said, any other connections out there. So since we last did podcasts, things have changed. There are new stations on the underground. We have had the Northern Mine Extension, which Paul worked on, which is very exciting. And that means we need to add two more slips of paper with station names on them. Now, I've cut, I took one out of the bag. I didn't look at what it said. I flipped it over and I cut two pieces of paper, the same printer paper I used to print the original ones and the same size. I'm going to write with a soft pen so I can't feel by texture what the new stations are. I'm very dedicated to making sure these are truly random. So I'm going to write on them now, Paul. You talk about the two stations and I will write. Okay, so of course the two new stations are on the Northern Line Extension from Kennington via Nine Elms to Battersea Power Station. So I'm uh, writing Nine Elms. Yep, Nine Elms Station. Okay. And then... I'm just going to put that in there. And into the bag it goes. Flip that around. And then the terminus of the line, Battersea Power Station. Station. This pen was not a good choice. I bought this pen in China. It's actually a calligraphy pen. Um, and it's difficult to write on small pen pieces of paper with. But I have written Battersea Power Station. It is going in the bag. So we need to pick out our next station. I think we should just say this is probably the only time... Unless this takes a very long time to do all of our podcasts, that we'll add new stations into the bag. It's I mean, a momentous occasion. Yeah, it really I mean, is. This, this will take us a very long time, but I'm not sure quite that long. But the only prospect of new tube stations is what, like, the building of the Bakerloo line extension, which, as of the time of recording, is on hold. I meant to take a photo for them for our social media before I put them in the bag, but I forgot, so it's too late now. Yeah, because okay, you don't know where they are now. Let's pick out the next station. Give it a good shake. I gave it a good shake. I've been flipping Rattle it around. around. Okay, okay, good, good. Okay. okay, and here we go. Okay, hold on. Where's it going to be? Harrow and Wheelstone. Oh. That's interesting. That I is mean, interesting. It was actually just the anniversary of the disaster there, wasn't it? Just the other the day. The Harrow crash, yes. Yes. Um, and end of the Bakerloo line. Yep. DC... Watford DC lines. Yep. Do we know anything else about Harrow and Wheelstone? I won't get it confused with Totteridge and Whetstone again, because we've already done that one. Yeah, I, I think that's what we know about Harrow and Wheelstone. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. We know very, very, very little. very little. Well, we are going to learn. So, uh, yeah, we will be back again next week for Harrow and Wheelstone. Though it sounds like a few seconds since we finished off recording the Thaden Boys episode, it's actually been a couple of months, and in that time we secured a special guest, and our next podcast is going to have a special guest. We're really excited about this. We have Daniel Fox from the Signals to Danger podcast. If you haven't heard of that podcast, it's a fantastic podcast looking at the history of railway disasters, and he's going to be talking about the Harrow and Wheelstone crash with us on the next episode. 
So definitely tune in for that. And also, if you don't listen to Daniel's podcast, do it. Signals to Danger. It's really, really good. As with the end of any of our episodes, we have a map-based listener challenge if you want to get involved. So this is a challenge between Thaden Boys, which we've obviously just done, and Heroin Wieldstone. Thaden Boys, as you've just learned, the, the boys is wood in French, even though that's not actually what it technically means in the sense of the station, but that is wood in French. Uh, Harrow and Wieldstone, the Harrow Wield means Harrow Wood. So we thought we'd make a challenge about wood. Snaker, snaker, snaker. And this challenge is to get to as many stations as you can that have wood in the name on a journey between Thaden Boys and Harrow and Wheelstone. So as many as you can with wood in the name without doubling back on yourself. So you might not be able to get them all, but see how many you can get. If you have a response to this, you can let us know. You can email us at roundalroundpod at gmail.com or on Twitter or Instagram at roundalroundpod. So if you've got some answers, we'd love to hear them. Now, We've got a little bit more unfinished business from the last podcast that Paul wanted to share. In our previous episode on Boston Manor, we mentioned that in June and July of 1930, Frank Pick, at the time the managing director of the Underground Group, and Charles Holden, who was the favoured architect of the Underground Group, had made a tour of mainland Europe uh, to have a look at some of the latest modern architecture there. And they were accompanied by this mystery person, W.P.N. Edwards, who we knew was Lord Ashfield's secretary at the time. That's Lord Ashfield's the chairman of the Underground Group. Uh, but beyond a few other details about jobs he'd held at other times in his life, we hadn't been able to work out anything else about WPN Edwards, uh, including what their first name was, or indeed what their gender was. So we did ask if anybody had any uh, extra sources of information and could solve the mystery of this person. And Neil Dodge, who has done some fantastic bits of research for Round All Round We Go, and solved various puzzles we've had, has managed to dig up a lot of information, and we have discovered that WPN Edwards was in fact William Philip Neville Edwards, who was born on the 5th of August 1904 near Chichester, died in 1995, also near Chichester, at least at some point in his life, was six foot two and a half inches tall with dark brown hair. That's so specific. It's incredible. <laughs> Incredible, isn't it? All this information comes from Ancestry.com. So thank you so much, Neil, for digging all of that out. And in fact, Neil found even more information because uh, William Philip Neville Edwards was interviewed for oral history to contribute to the Truman Presidential Library in 1970. And that was because during the Second World War, he did a lot of work in Anglo-American relations and with the Ministry of Production for sort of supplying the British government. He spent a lot of time both during and after the Second World War working on relations between London and Washington, travelling backwards and forwards between Britain and the United States. That was a career which included being present at the signing of the North Atlantic Treaty by President Truman, which established NATO. So really quite an intriguing life there. Round Around We Go is produced by us, Paul Berger Gray and Emily Turner. We do just about everything except for our artwork, which is by the brilliant Colleen McIsaac. You can find them at Little Foible Art on Instagram, so check them out. Does that leave us with anything else or can we go over to sources? 
I think it's time to list all of our sources, isn't it? And of course, we use a huge range of sources in researching Round All Round We Go, a particularly large range of them for Thaden Boys, so I won't give the full details of every single one now, but they are all listed in their entirety in the programme notes for this episode. And they include, among others, London's Local Railways by Alan A. Jackson, The Twopenny Tube, The Story of the Central Line by J. Graham Bruce and Desmond Croom, London Underground Stations in Colour for the Modeler and Historian by John Glover. London Underground Stations by David LeBoff. Rails Through the Clay by Alan Jackson and Desmond Croom. Jeff Marshall's Tube Station Trivia. Labyrinth, A Journey Through London's Underground by Tamsin Dillon, Will Self, Mark Wallinger, Marina Warner, Christian Wilmar and Louise Coish. Why Do Shepherds Need a Bush? London's Underground History of Tube Station Names by David Hilliam. What's in a Name? Origins of Station Names on the London Underground by Cyril M. Harris. The Epping Railway Company, 1859 to 1863 by P.W. Kingsford. And then we found various online and uh, newspaper sources as well, uh, including The Village That Refuses to Have Streetlights and More by Espen Ars of NRK, the Norwegian Broadcasting Corporation. Quite a few sources on the uh, temperance retreats in Thaden Boys, including Holidays from Yesteryear by David Egborough from East London and West Essex Guardian, Thaden Grey's Retreat Auxiliary Hospital by the Wartime Memories Project, Grey's Temperance Retreat from a Postcard History of Harwich, Dovercourt and Parkeston. We've also found several sources on the history of Thaden Boys including from the local Thaden Boys Village website and the Essex Field Club. We've got the Visit Epping Forest website's information on the Thaden Boys Donkey Derby. We've also used several freedom of information requests to look at the uh, veracity or otherwise of claims that Essex County Council was subsidising the fares on the central line up to Thaden Boys and Epping. Please join us and Daniel Fox next week for Harrow and Wheelstone.